0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Colleen Rowley. She was Time's Person of the Year in 2002 because she was an FBI lawyer in Minneapolis. And her team had arrested Zacharias Massawi. And as Laura has it, and I think it's true, They had only been allowed to do their job and look at this guy's computer. It would have led him right to some of the Al-Qaeda pilot hijackers from September 11th living in Florida at the time, and they could have stopped the attack. But they were not allowed to do their job because Washington, D.C. said no. And uh, so then Colleen Rowley came out and blew the whistle and told the whole story and warned the government you shouldn't attack Iraq because, boy, you want to talk about making our terrorism problem worse. All that was in... um, her big letter to the Senate that was published in Memory Service May 2002 and uh, made a big splash and has had so much great stuff to say and has written so many great things, especially for consortiumnews.com uh, over the last 15 years since. Too. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Oh, very well. Uh, that was a great summary. Um, you know, as it it's been agonizing to to live through 20 years of, of just nothing, but I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like one domino hits another one. It it's kind of it reminds me of the Pete Seeger song, waist deep in the big muddy. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's like we're eyeball deep in the big muddy and the big fools still say to keep pushing on. It's it's incredible that no one can figure out when when uh, really terrible mistakes and fiascos. Some of them are very reckless. Uh, and no one can figure that out afterwards and correct them, but instead just keep pushing on. And, and that's the, I think where we find ourselves right now, especially with the Afghanistan ending, although perhaps there's a moment, a, a short moment of recognition, you know, we can hope uh, about that. but it's it's really sad to see that uh, none of very few, if any of the uh, truth came out about 9/11. Yeah, I, I shouldn't say that. I say some did. Some truth eventually came out in all of these official inquiries. The uh, Congressional Joint Intelligence Committee inquiry w- was pretty good. They actually did investigate Saudi Arabia's role, although although it was blacked out for years and years and years. And then Zelico, when he did the 9-11 commission, he just totally omitted it. And, uh, of course, the, there was an inspector general report, hundreds of pages long, that my memo led directly to. And even in that inspector general investigation, we now know that one of the agents who was assigned to the CIA counterterrorism uh, unit was told he had to lie. Uh, and that was again about their fail, the CIA's failure to warn the FBI when they knew two of the hijackers had uh, come into California. I mean, all these years later, uh, they still have not uncovered uh, a lot of it. I I barely knew some of it in uh, on the uh, eight months after 9/11. Of course, I knew a lot about the Musawi uh, fiasco where our headquarters had not allowed. Uh, uh, an emergency FISA request, even though those agents absolutely knew this from the start and they had it, they really had a, um, so prescient that they identified the same uh, criminal statutes that Musawi ended up being convicted of. Hmm. I mean, this was a day after they had taken him, him into custody that they actually identified the criminal statutes that he later was convicted of Well I,
0: I know one of your agents even speculated that this guy might be trying to crash into the World Trade Center tower in New York.
1: Yeah, that was in an argument with headquarters when they refused to to take this It turned out that the legal unit at headquarters they lied initially about it, but there a unit chief who was a former marine, I don't know what he was, marine officer of some sort. He um, actually uh, initially, uh, what, what's the word? He, he, you know, he didn't tell the truth. Um, he had not even read the declaration, the emergency declaration sent in by the Minneapolis office. He had only listened to the supervisor give him, give him a five minute uh, oral briefing. Oh, yeah, they don't know anything in Minneapolis, you know. Uh, they think there's something here, but there's nothing. That was the oral briefing instead of reading the actual facts for himself. But he didn't own up to that until a lot later. I I think, of course, there's always this human tendency to not tell the truth after something tragic and terrible happens. That's always the case. You know, there you know, obviously, everybody's like that. You know, something bad happens. The first inclination is not to tell the truth about how that happened, of course, to protect people and your friends and everybody else. But you would think after 20 years that there would at least be some uh, idea that we have, to, we have to get to the bottom of some of these mistakes. And, you know, as I've been saying, these were really simple mistakes to correct, Uh, When information is bottled up inside of agencies, you know, not shared even inside of agencies and certainly not shared between agencies and then, of course, not shared with the public, Uh, which which isn't me saying this. This is the 9-11 Commission finding their so-called, you know, failure to connect the dots was a threefold thing that there was failure to share information inside of agencies. I'm still learning things myself about some of these really uh, debacles of of lack of information sharing. For instance, Tenet was it was one of the rare occasions where he knew everything. He knew a lot about the Musawi case, probably because his own uh, Bin Laden counterterrorism unit had briefed him, and he w- he was given a, a a briefing on August, I think 23rd or 24th. Obviously, what two three weeks before 9/11. Uh, Islamic extremist learns to fly. And on the day of 9-11, when he was told that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center, he said, oh, I wonder if it's that guy learning to fly in Minnesota. First thing out of his mouth. Mm -hmm. So here it did go up to the top, the whole director of central intelligence, and yet he still failed to act. Um, There are all kinds of other, uh, oh man, there must be dozens of these cases where T- uh, officials did not even either they didn't read the memos, uh, intelligence memos that were sent directly to their name. It was addressed to them, and then afterwards they say, "I didn't read it." Uh, Tenet said none of his officials read these key memos about uh, the two hijackers coming into California. When in fact, it looks like it looks like most of them did read it. But he then, of course, could lie afterwards and say, no, they never read it. The same thing happened in the FBI. Uh, I was made aware, I, I think there was an article a couple years ago c- because it was an exhibit in the Musawi trial. But there was this really uh, important uh, intelligence memo, April of 2001, written in April 2001. And the title of that memo in the FBI that was sent directly to eight or nine. The director and eight or nine of his top assistants, and it was entitled um, uh, "Chechen terrorist leader Abu Qatadah and Osama bin Laden are entwined and going to attack the United States." And then it had all the, you know, the substantive uh, details be, uh, underneath that. Now, the reason they said that the that the agents in Minneapolis didn't have probable cause was because the intelligence uh, that came directly from France, he was on their terrorist list, uh, was that he was he was recruiting and working for Abu Katab, the Chechen terrorist leader. So the, the headquarters uh, was arguing, well, the Chechens, you know, they're, they're kind of our assets. they're not they're, they're not terrorists. They've never been in a FISA document before. And so that was later determined to be a mistake by the inquiries that it, the Chechen group was actually a terrorist but besides that besides that here's this memo from 5 months before that says katab and bin laden are buddies they they were they were working together during you know charlie wilson's war when the united states was funding and arming the terrorists in uh, or what do you call them the the jihadists in in uh in Afghanistan in order to uh at Brzezinski's big plan to push out the Soviet Union. So they were actually aligned with each other. So I mean there was there were so many different ways that 9-11 could have been prevented on a on a whole it's not just one way. Uh, obviously when they find out that Musawi was being paid by uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's right-hand man, as as was Mohammed Atta and all the other uh, terrorist suspects. That was one way. That takes a little while to find out those connections. But then the Phoenix memo said we have to do a direct uh, investigation of all the terrorists in flight schools. And, you know, so for instance, Musawi in this flight school here in, in uh, the Twin Cities, He stood out like a sore thumb to the point where two of the flight instructors separately decided to become whistleblowers and go against their own flight school and calling the FBI. They called, each of them called separately about an hour between each other. And they got into all kinds of trouble with their employer for doing that. But they said, you know, he's the most suspicious student we've ever had. Well, if you, in hindsight, when you start asking the questions at the other flight schools, so for instance, Mohammed Ada, he stood out like a sore thumb as well. Um, You know, so that's another way that this could have been prevented. But the easiest way it could have been prevented was just to have warned the Federal Aviation Administration that they needed to shut the cockpit doors so that, Uh, Whether it's a crazy person or an unruly passenger or a terrorist, they cannot get into the cockpit. And that was actually broached even before 9-11 due to other incidents, not necessarily terrorism, but just due to uh, drunk passengers or, you know, people that were had some domestic terrorism or whatever it was. So that had been broached, but it cost a few hundred dollars to make sure that the cockpit doors would not open. And so that was the easiest thing. And, and in fact, our agents insisted that FAA be warned. But what happened in that case, too, was headquarters watered down the warnings and uh, FAA did not follow through or, do, you know, or warn anybody or do anything.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you something here, because especially this is an interesting question 20 years later, I guess, that the kinds of things you describe are such mediocre failures and so many of them and leading to such a catastrophe that then had such consequences after that too. And so even from the very beginning, people said, and especially when you look at how cynically the Bush administration exploited this tragedy, that it seems like, the CIA and the FBI and the NSA don't like each other and don't cooperate well It's just a limited hangout that they must have let this happen deliberately or even made it happen deliberately. Because how can you explain this many cops and spies being this bad at such an important job? And I'm not trying to straw man it. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it like a fair question. And people think that it must have been a deliberate blind eye, Colleen. What do you think about that?
1: You know, I think I have, I keep an open mind about this. Um, And I, and I also will caveat that I'm aware of a lot of, um, for your, for your listeners, if they don't know what Peter principle is, um, it is jaw dropping. Um, So the Peter principle is, is pretty amazing, especially in the FBI. It was bad because, no one wanted to go into management. So, people that were at headquarters were often like, uh, they were ambitious, obviously, they raised their hand to go, but the best and most competent uh, agents actually did stay in the field. Um, so, we would always talk amongst ourselves about these empty suit uh, officials who, frankly, when they tried to go through the revolving door after retirement, even Louis Free was like this. Louis Free went through the revolving door to a seven figure job at a credit card company. and i I think he was fired after a short while for incompetence. and And the same thing happened with some of my uh, of the other uh, ADICs, the assistant director in in New York. He was fired from security like a short while after. So there was that problem. So you can't deny that this Peter principle where, you know, they always say you you rise two ranks above where you're competent. But actually, in some cases, I think it's five or six ranks from what I have viewed in the government. Okay, so besides that, though, I think it would have been possible because the CIA knew so much about this, having monitored that al-qaeda summit meeting in kuala lumpur and then when you there are some researchers and they've tracked some of the documentation not all of it has been released but like emails back and forth between Tenet and um and his head of his bin laden unit at the time a guy named uh i think it was blee b-l-e-e right. who was a you know, a stalwart CIA. Now it's possible some of these people, I think here's what I think is possible. There are some times when some of these high ranking officials think they have the green light. So they, they're, they're not exactly rogues because they, they actually think, oh yeah, you gave me a wink there. So when, when they think they have the green light, then they take it on themselves to give plausible deniability to the, the top echelon. And so I, I think this, I've seen this happen. Of course, it, some of this happened with the torture program. And they were trying to keep, uh, you know, Bush, uh, the so-called White House principles from, know, or the White House principles were trying to keep the president from knowing all of the details about waterboarding and torture, et cetera. So that, that can happen. It obviously has happened before. And I, so I would not put it past some of these people who were very connected to South. Sa- like, for instance, Tenet. I didn't know this until recently either, but Tenet was really close with Bandar bin Sultan, who was the U.S. ambassador. His nickname was Bandar Bush because he was also close with the Bush family. Mm-hmm. And if Saudi Arabia knew a lot of this, they were tracking. In fact, I think Bandar bin Sultan actually once commented that Saudi Arabia had been tracking all of most of the of the um, 9/11 attackers. They'd been tracking them, and they knew these things. Mm-hmm. So then the question arises: Well, what did you pass on then to people like Tenet or et cetera? So again, there there's there's motives here. Uh, it took how many years for the 9/11 families to learn just the Most meager information about the uh, Joint Intelligence Committee uh, inquiry, the the information that came out linking uh, Bandar bin Sultan and some of the other Saudis to the helping and supporting the hijackers when they came into the um, New into the United States. Yeah. So that took how year, how many years? And then it took a, an act of Congress. It took an act of Congress to allow the uh, 9-11 families to even be allowed to sue Saudi Arabia. And even then Obama vetoed the, the legislation mm-hmm. inc- and had to be overruled. I mean, this is quite an incredible situation after all this time, that the truth about 9-11 is still somewhat I would say that I definitely agree with the 9/11 Commission about the failure to share information. I think that is absolutely true, um, and I've seen this. And there are reasons for it. Lots of reasons. These bureaucracies are really bad this way, but um, there is also the possibility that there was a little bit worse agenda. The you know the the neocon project for the new American century. If we just get our new Pearl Harbor. We, we can go on the war path and start our regime change operations in the in the Mideast. Yeah. So there's certainly that's in the background. There's certainly that's in the background. So I'm and-
0: a I'm a Gareth Porterian on this, which is that the real, you know, kind of obvious thing in front of all of us here is that the narrative inside the White House was the neocons and the Rumsfeldians saying, don't listen to the CIA yapping about Al Qaeda. They want us to go to Afghanistan. How the hell are we ever going to get to Baghdad if we're stuck in Afghanistan? So blow that off. What are they going to do? Set off a truck bomb overseas somewhere or something? Keep your eye on the ball. Going to Baghdad. And then once it happens, they go, oh, yeah, I mean, Saddam could give weapons to Osama, (laughs) you know, in the most cynical way. But that, that, you know, that kind of uh, dividing of their attention or, or distracting of their attention in that way is easier explained simply by people possessing other agendas rather than really believing that somebody's going to knock a tower down around here soon. That's a, That'd be a pretty big act of treason. I don't think there's even a neocon or a Cheney that has the courage to go that far. But I'll tell you what, the dog that didn't bark about this, honestly, to me, is from the FBI. Or the dog that did bark, or, but bark only growled in one direction or something. Because some FBI agents talked to Greg Palast in November 01, and they were mad as hell and said, we could have stopped this attack. God dang it. But you know why we couldn't was because the Bush team told us back off the Saudis. And that meant that was taken really severely, and it shut down all these multiple investigations into terrorist financing inside the United States and all the money trails that these, you know, uh, accountant FBI agents were tracking. But the reason why and they didn't believe they weren't suspicious at all at the time that, oh, that's because Bush and PNAC wanted an attack to happen. It was because they were worried that all these money trails went back to their friends in Houston who, you know, had all these close ties with the Saudis. And, you know, Prince Turkey and the Saudi government had been paying all this protection money to al-Qaeda to not attack inside the kingdom. And then, you know, a lot of that money was washing around. And a lot of these people have business ties to Enron and whatever other you know companies down there in Houston. And so let's just not look into all that. That was one thing. And they didn't think that SOB Bush, he wanted this to happen, which you would think that they might think that if that was actually what they were stuck in the middle of, you know what I mean? But it it didn't feel that way to them. And the other one is Ali Soufan. And I kind of have my problems with him because I get his daily email and he makes me growl. But <laughs> I, I do think he's essentially an honest guy. And he was the FBI agent investigating the coal attack in Yemen. And he did this interview with um looming tower lawrence wright that wrote the looming tower and it's filmed by alex gibney the famous uh, documentarian and he's talking with doug miller and i'm sorry the other guy's name who are the fbi agents who say that mark they were rossini. not allowed i'm sorry
1: mark rossini
0: exactly thank you so much so it's doug miller and mark rossini and and ali sufon talking And they're talking about how they weren't allowed to tell the FBI. None of these guys are suspicious that this is a let it happen on purpose type thing. When they tell their story, you can tell. I mean, you can kind of, you could tell. These guys, that's not what they think happened. But Soufan tells the most outrageous story out of all of them, even more outrageous than not telling the FBI about the guys in San Diego in a way. Um, Just in the narrative, the way he tells it, that the day of September 11th, he's called into the embassy in Yemen and you know CIA station and he goes in the back room and they open up a Manila envelope and they show him as you mentioned the Kuala Lumpur Malaysia meeting and they have like a I guess like a PowerPoint slide you know kind of infographic about it or something I think he describes where you can see where one half of this meeting is the USS Cole attack and the other half of the meeting is September 11th and he can just see it right there oh yeah, jeez, you guys might have let us know, you know. Mm-hmm. Thanks a lot for nothing for telling us too late. But again, he doesn't Thank think, yeah, because you wanted this to happen. He thinks, yeah, because that's how it is. You don't ever tell us anything till it's too late. And, oh, one more thing about that was I used to shoot the shit sometimes with Frederick Whitehurst, the FBI crime lab whistleblower. And um, I had talked with him about this a few times. And he told me that, like, listen, the TV kind of idea that if an FBI agent does a good job and takes his work to his boss, that his boss will say, good job, Jenkins, here's some money. Go and do more of that good work pursuing that. That just never happens ever, ever. That You don't know what happens to the work that you did, but if anything goes anywhere, they hand it to somebody else and not you. And you just get a new job. And it's like working at McDonald's or something where you're just only responsible for one little piece of a thing. And there is no kind of broader narrative. So there is no character in this movie who gets the Florida memos and the Arizona memos and the Minneapolis, Minnesota memos and and the rest of them all and kind of can piece it together. It's all just sort of inside the FBI or the CIA or anywhere is sort of floating around. But I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I don't want to oversimplify it or let anybody off the hook either. But I'm just saying that makes sense to me, you know.
1: No. And what you're describing is kind of what I was trying to say about individuals and the Peter Principle, the bureaucratic nature of the whole thing is also a problem. But still, those things can be fixed a lot easier than launching, uh, you know, successive wars in countries that had nothing to do with it and, and massive surveillance of Americans and torture programs and all the things that were done after 9-11. Fixing uh, the way administrations are run, accountability, uh, even ensuring that when you read a memo, I mean, this is a very easy thing to fix. You know, ensuring that when you did read it, it was initialled off or something, so that you later can't say I didn't read it. That's it's pretty pretty basic. That's a heck of a lot easier than spending trillions of dollars in trying to b- bring democracy to the Middle East and and whatever. Um, let me just comment there, though, about the let it happen in, in Pearl Harbor. There's also this thing that when these planners, uh, the Pentagon is famous for having backup plans, plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. So that's a smart thing, actually, you know, not to put all your eggs in one basket on plan A, but think, oh, well, if that doesn't work, then we go to plan B. So that's that becomes a way of thinking so that when you say if we ever get our new Pearl Harbor, there's somebody who says, well, we know we're going to get something. OK, that's just that's for sure. We're, you know, we're going to get s- things happen. And then the question is, can we, uh, as Carl Rove said, make our own reality? Can we use any uh, incident, you know, Gulf of Tonkin? I mean, this is very famous in wars that they can right. use almost uh, Lusitania. I mean, <laughs> on and on and on. Uh, you can use any incident uh, to then. Get your agenda going. Hey, they so when seized they
0: guns that, after it's... Katrina. Nobody blames them for causing the storm or for blowing a few blow them up for uh, blame them for blowing up the levees or something, but not really. But they just exploited it anyway and said, we're going door to door. See what that's like. Taking people's rifle. That's
1: that's the shock doc. You know, it's it's what is about the shock doctrine. When anything happens in people, we're seeing it now with COVID, actually. I I hate to change the subject to this politically incorrect, but yeah, go we ahead. are seeing we're seeing the way fear can be used with anything to ramp up a completely wrong approach or whatever, you know, completely wrong-headed solutions. You know, I I'm very much against the forced. Mass vaccination project that's going on, and I don't think it's a solution at all. You're you're seeing a lot of scientists saying it's not, but that's be- I brought up a, a politically volatile thing, but it's it's this is what happens, and and so you have that shock doctrine where, you know, anything that happens. But I want to go back to Gareth Porter because what you said about the Bush administration not wanting to upset Saudi Arabia. Um, you know he did a lot of great investigative work of these earlier al qaeda attacks in saudi arabia yeah the so Kobar
0: towers uh huh
1: that's right yeah, and so once our ally bin laden and and the other Ji- saudi jihadists that were sent into afghanistan to do, be our proxies and fight uh, with the mujahideen so once that's over um and then we we launched that se- that first gulf war Bin Laden apparently wanted to to be involved again. You know, the jihadists could go and fight, uh, co- um, could fight uh, Iraq. And Saudi Arabia then chose the United States. And then we kept those uh, bases there. So there was this motive for al-Qaeda to get mad and start going after um military people stationed in uh, Saudi Arabia. Initially, there was some bombings in Riyadh in 1995, and then the terrible Khobar Towers bombing of this Air Force dormitory that killed 19 uh, airmen and wounded over 300. And you're going, this really ties in with what we're talking about, how you can pull off a really, you know, completely upside down, twist the facts, Louis Free allowed, he micromanaged that case, and he allowed the Saudis to tell him who to indict. And of course, the Saudis didn't want to say anything about al-Qaeda. They wanted to cover that up. They wanted to indict their enemies, the uh, Iranian-connected Shia. And so on his last day in the office, Louis Free uh, made sure that 12 of these Shia uh, Iranian-connected uh, people were, were indicted for this really terrible uh, terrorist attack in 1996. Mm-hmm. And when you read Gareth Porter's, there's a lot of evidence that this was totally wrong. Then in hindsight, you also see Louis Free uh, becoming one of the MEK, uh, whatever it's called, the Mujahideen Kolk, which is this group trying uh-huh. to topple Iran, and he becomes one of their paid uh, lobbyists, you know, Amazing. advisors, whatever he is. Yep. So, so you're seeing a lot of evidence that that whole thing was really cooked up. And this is even what five, six, five years before nights, uh, before nine 11. Right. And we had a massive twisting of, of facts.
0: Well, listen, and, and it was so important too, because who was killed again, 19 American airmen. And it was bin Laden and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who did it. And why? Because they were airmen. They were there to bomb Iraq. And that was the whole deal. And Bin Laden admitted that he did it to Abdelbari Atwan. And it was, and, and uh, you know, William Perry, the Secretary of Defense, was convinced that it was al-Qaeda, not Iranian-backed Shia, Hezbollah, whatever, as you say. I didn't know the part about it. It was his last day in office when he pushed that lie through.
1: Last day. But,
0: you know, I remember at that time, The big scandal about that, and this is scandalous in its own little way, but the scandal about that wasn't even the 19 killed, much less anything about the motive. Because, you know, when they blamed it on the, the, you know, Iranian shia back thing, Saudi, whatever, they might as well just blamed it on nothing, and the thing just went away. Because that didn't make any sense. They weren't going to bomb Tehran over it, and so they just didn't do anything, and it mostly just kind of went away. So the scandal was that there was a lady at a rally who yelled, you suck at Bill Clinton and he had her arrested and they held her overnight or maybe even for two days for yelling, you suck. And her point was that they didn't have good security at the barracks to protect the guys, you know, sleeping there. And Mm -hmm. which was the same thing that had already happened. That should have been a lesson of Beirut. You have a barracks in a foreign country like that. You have guys with machine guns at the gate for God's sake, you know, whatever kind of thing. And that was her only point. And she was arrested. And then that was it. And that was the whole scandal. I remember Rush Limbaugh and G. Gordon Liddy talked about it for two days each or whatever it was. And then it went away. But you know what they didn't talk about was, man, some of these Saudi right wingers want us the hell off of their soil. And maybe we should be. Can't we bomb Iraq from our ships in the Persian Gulf? Come on.
1: Yeah, I, I feel terrible about Cobar Towers because one of those Air Force uh, young men, he was only like 21, was from Minnesota. And as the victim witness coordinator, I had to, my job, I had to relay all these micromanaged communications from Louis Free um, to the family, to the parents and to his young wife. And I now realize everything I was telling them was really a lie. I, I can't believe, I even also accompanied them to an in-person briefing at Quantico. All of the Cobark fam, uh, Tower families went to this direct briefing from Louis Free, and I went with them. And I'm thinking back to this, and of course, nobody, they don't know anything. The, the families didn't know anything. Can, can you imagine, though, what you're doing? I mean, the same thing happened with the 9-11 families. And I think back to being in the room and thinking to, they're they're blaming the wrong people. I had, of course, I had no knowledge at the time, or I probably would have been a whistleblower and I would have lost my pension a long time before uh, later on because I didn't know that this was that bad. And I did not know how bad Louis Free was at the time. Yeah, I knew him personally from New York City, uh, working in the organized crime, and I had no idea that he would turn out so bad. But I I go back to my power corrupts and. That's the problem is these people can actually start off okay, but when they're in these environments, they get so corrupted by the money and, mm-hmm. and by the, the, the influences and the things that they they go around the block and they say, this is the way I do it. And, and Louis Free is a prime example of that because I don't think he started off that bad, but boy, he's terrible now along with all the rest of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, y'all check out our great stuff at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. First of all, we've published No Quarter, the ravings of William Norman Grigg, our Institute's late and great co-founder. He was the very best one of us. Our whole movement, I mean. And no quarter will leave his mark on you, no question. Which brings us to the works of our other co-founder, the legendary libertarian thinker and writer Sheldon Richman. We've published two collections of his great essays, Coming to Palestine, and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. Both are instant classics. I am proud to say that Coming to Palestine is surely the definitive libertarian take on Israel's occupation of the Palestinians. And Social Animals certainly ranks with the very best writings on libertarian ethics, economics, and everything else. You'll absolutely love it. Then there's me. I've written two books, Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and Enough Already. Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've also published a collection of the transcripts of all of my interviews of the heroic Dr. Ron Paul, 29 of them, plus a speech by me about how much I love the guy. It's called The Great Ron Paul. You can find all of these at libertarianinstitute.org books. All right, I want to go back to something you said about uh, Richard Blee, who I'm not exactly sure what his title was inside the bin Laden unit there. Maybe he was Sawyer's replacement. I get them confused. There's a bunch of I different ones. I think he in. might
1: have been because he was the head of it.
0: And there's a lady named Michael, and I just get lost. But anyway, uh, or maybe that's her alias, or I don't know what it, How this thing? But um, I get all confused. But I'll tell you this. uh Ray Nowaleski, and I have his book, and I always say his name wrong. Sorry, Ray. I went out to dinner with the guy. He's a very nice guy. And he, helped, uh, my wife, uh, Larissa Alexandrovna Horton, helped make um, – His uh, movie, Press for Truth, back, what, a long time ago, 10, 12, 13 years ago or something like that. Um, And uh, so he went and met with Richard Clark. And you know what? I can only find the Rich Bleed podcast one, but I could swear to God that there was a part two of the thing and that it was a video thing on YouTube. Or maybe I have it confused, but I could swear there's two parts, but I can only find one now. Anyway. They went and met with Richard Clark and Ray says to the guy, you know, X, Y, Z about what we now know the CIA knew about the San Diego guys. And Clark, seemingly honestly, I mean, he's got a reason to deny it, but Clark, you know, he's the White House counterterrorism coordinator guy. And he's saying, listen, man, I mean, I would stay up to three o'clock in the morning talking on the phone with George Tenet every night gossiping about Al Qaeda stuff. You know what I mean? Like, this is our life. And you're telling me that he knew that and he never told me that. And wow, man, because it was sort of, you know, it wasn't something on YouTube or whatever. He was being confronted with actual details here. And he and then his excuse was Tenet kept this all from me. And then his reasoning was and he was speculating, but his reasoning was. They must have been trying to turn these guys and make them double agents inside Al-Qaeda, but then they gave them too much length of rope, and then, you know, or lost track of them. Stopped, canceled the sting, but then still didn't tell the FBI, you better round these guys up, or whatever it was. Something along those lines was his interpretation. But he seemed, you know, I don't know. This is just video and some humor. But he seemed to be honest about how kind of pissed off he was that... It's pretty clear now that Tenet knew much more than he had been told at the time when he had every reason to believe at the time that he was being told everything, you know.
1: Right. And there was a reason. uh, I think that actually does make sense. A lot of sense. Um, There was a reason for keeping that um, effort very top secret so that very few people would know what was going on, especially not the FBI. One one thing is it's basically illegal for the CIA to try to do an informant operation inside a domestic uh, territory. They're supposed to be doing this abroad but not inside. And if they would have something that would overlap from, from an operation abroad that then comes into the US, that at the very least, that they were supposed to work with the FBI, not just do this on their own. So that's one reason for keeping this all hush-hush, because this was totally wrong, even if it had worked, even if this, if this flipping thing had worked. And then that, so that does make sense. Uh, and it's, it is a reason why it was kept so secret. The other uh, thing here is informants going south, uh, so-called uh, efforts to develop informants. In, in fact, I think Al-Laki. Al-Laki was a, a failed effort. They right. approached him. They tried to blackmail him uh, through sexual uh, incidents, etc. And he says, no way, I'm getting out of here. And he, he went off to, to Yemen. But that he was a failed attempt to flip somebody. And then, of course, you look at the operations of of Whitey Bulger and and Scarpa and in all of these cases, and actually Bin Laden is in, in Abu Qatada are not too different because when you're operating assets abroad as proxies, then when they turn uh, things turn, you know it's you have to figure out if you're the official. Ha! How, how can we sell this now? This was our. This was our guy, but now they have, you know, now they're our enemy. They turn. So, and, and why did we do this? Why did we arm them? Why did we fund them, et cetera? So people want to cover up the dirty laundry involved in this whole thing about using, you know, for lack of a better term, informants, assets, proxy forces. Oftentimes these go south. It's not uncommon for them to go south. And certainly, that seems to be what might have happened in California. Maybe through one of these Saudi officials, there was some way that they thought they could get their tentacles in there and somehow, you know, somehow get some leverage or something. But if you actually did a study of how many don't work and turn bad, and that there's an attempt, it's probably many more times. Than the successful times, mm-hmm. uh, and again, this is just anecdotal. But from what I see, there are many more attempts at this that don't work, that do in, that actually are successful. Yeah. And you'll never hear this from the agencies because this is their bread and butter. Uh, this is the secret world of agendas, and again, this whole thing of using uh, different people for different reasons.
0: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I also. You know, to be fair to the truthers, to the real truthers, this probably all sounds like a limited hangout. And I'm sorry, it's your interview, but I don't want to sound like I'm making excuses for these people or whatever. I accuse them all the way to the degree that I can. And I try not to go any further than that. But I'm happy to say and I do accuse the Bush administration of exploiting the September 11th tragedy to the degree that they might as well have done it. Right. There's a somewhere there's like a graph you could chart this out, even though it's a quality, not a quantity, where if you exploit some horrible grief stricken thing that happened like that to such a degree, at some point, it's as bad as if you had gone ahead and killed the people yourself in a big false flag, because at some point, as Hillary Clinton would say, what difference does it make when you kill a million people? by exploiting and making up a bunch of, you know, spinning a bunch of mythology out of a day, this horrible tragedy that they could have prevented if they'd been doing their job. Like, for example, whose job was it to corral the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and make sure that they're protecting us from terrorist attacks? Well, that's the president's job and the national security advisor's job and the heads of those and George Tenet's job as the DCI. You know, Michael Scheuer talked about Tenet, and this is in James Bamford's book, The Shadow Factory, too, that the CIA begged George Tenet to go to the NSA, which he was supposedly the king of, and make them give the intercepts that they had that they had from the Yemen switchboard house to the FBI or to the CIA. And the NSA just wouldn't give them to him. So they went and at least the mythology is i I hate to just push CIA narratives here, but This was the way they told the tale was the CIA went and built their own listening station on Madagascar so that they could intercept half the conversation, but they couldn't get the whole thing. They could hear the Yemen side of the conversation, but they couldn't hear what anybody was saying in Europe or in Afghanistan or whatever it was. And and it was just because, as Sawyer put it, as he might, because Tenet didn't have the moral courage to march over there and do his damn job and demand General, give me the intercepts because I said so, which is what it would have taken to make it happen. And he wouldn't do that. And so then people's towers fall down on their heads.
1: Yeah, I I think um, the more, you know, and you just mentioned another case of lack of the information sharing this one between the NSA and the CIA. The more you know about this, the worse this is. And and I totally agree with you that it, um, you know, the so-called false flags, in fact, many of them, you know, you start thinking, well, some of them are just accidental fires and other things, but this willingness and the cynicism to use anything at all for a pre-agreed upon agenda. So the agendas are already in place. and, And maybe this is a bit of a problem because we think to, you have all these think tanks and Pentagon, uh, like I said, plan A, plan B, plan C stuff. And so they've got all this down. And so when they get this opportunity, but you think about it, this is horrible to think that you're waiting for an opportunity to initiate this prior agenda. And I I totally agree. It's every bit as bad. And uh, obviously, it's not justified because you are using, uh, you're your exaggerating or you're amplifying or you're misattributing which is was what happened at, with the Gulf of Tonkin, with, with uh, Iraq, et cetera. It's always the same. It's, it just history keeps repeating this way. And uh, if, if only people would be more,, uh, I don't know, intelligent, you know, for, it seems like after Vietnam people did kind of wise up. and there was this little moment of this lull for the, the quote unquote, Vietnam syndrome that they hated. But that meant that people were just a little more aware of how officials were so cynically manipulating and exploiting uh, public opinion. I think that there was this little moment. But then, of course, people, after a few years, they forget. And then we go right back into square one. Yeah. Uh, Bush's father was just so happy that he had defeated Vietnam syndrome, and we could get back into, back into business. And when they're making money, uh, again, not to be bringing up the the big pharma and the COVID stuff. But, you know, when there's this terrible incentive, perverse incentive of billions and billions of dollars, I defy most human beings not to fall into this. Uh, You know, a lot of people I know, oh, I would never do that. But you know what? You've never been confronted with somebody handing you billions of dollars. And when that happens, like I said, I've seen so many uh, people that started off okay they weren't terrible, evil babies, but as things go on and they are in this environment with terrible, perverse incentives and, and also disincentives, uh, like all whistleblowers that become terrible disincentives from telling the truth that all whistleblowers face. So it's, it's both things. Most, most people will fall into it. It's, it's just the way it is. And, I think you're you're. I want to applaud your efforts because you're you're one of the few people out there all this time for, for all these years trying your darndest to, to wake people up and get them to think and and you know be concerned for actual facts and truth as opposed to all of this uh, narrative stuff from on high that we shock doctrine and the use of emotional manipulation to get people to do what you want and and facts are you know scientists care are supposed to care about facts although don't know if that's so true anymore in the covid thing but scientists are supposed to care about facts that's what we all should be we all should be intelligence analysts you know where facts are the only things that matter um so hopefully we get a little moment now after the Afghanistan war, I'm hoping we get, I, I'm i not optimistic we'll get as long as Vietnam, but you just hope that there is some thinking going on.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So if there was to be accountability, what might it look like, do you think? How could we get well? Well, <laughs> uh,
1: you go back to the, these inquiries. Um, I told somebody recently, I saw one official inquiry and then maybe there's more. But of all the so-called official inquiries I've seen where they they will give you all this euphemistic, we're looking for the truth, and everybody on the panel is is objective and doesn't have any conflict of interest, et cetera. So you always hear that. But I've only I'm only aware of one official investigation that possibly is more of a model. And that those were the investigations after the Challenger and the Columbia blew up. They did have, uh, you know, certain NASA officials and some some military officers. Sally Ride, the astronaut, was on one of these panels. I've read them, and you know, they actually kind of aired the dirty laundry, and they actually got into why did why did the um, O-ring experts why did no one listen to them when they actually knew the O-rings would not hold up on the on the Challenger. Uh, They got into that. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with the Columbia. There were people that wanted to go up and take pictures to see what the damage was, but they were not listened to. So both of those official inquiries actually did out some of the dirty laundry truth. Um, So that I think those are kind of the model For, for starters. One thing you can't do when you have any accountability is you can't nominate Henry Kissinger to be the leader of the 9-11 Commission. You can't nominate Zellico, who's a close associate of Condi Rice, who was a, you can't have, uh, going back to COVID, you can't have uh, Fauci, who who is part of the patents and, and all of this nefarious research that's been going on. You can't have anyone who has, is invested. If they're invested in this, uh, then of course, there's no hope for the truth to come out. And unfortunately, I think what we've been seeing for so many years now is is such kind of widespread corruption of conflict of interest. Uh, The talking heads for our our mainstream media has Brennan and all these generals. There have been a couple articles. Well, they're all sitting on boards where their stock in weapon companies has gone through the roof. And if you are own, if you have that kind of stock, what I just said about walking away from money—Are you going to go in there and say, "Oh, yeah, we should we should stop the war in Afghanistan when when it's going into my bank account?" I mean, it's never going to happen. You've got to disentangle our whole justice system. Recognize from the start that you can't have a judge trying to to be objective and come up. Uh, with something if they have a conflict of interest, if they have a serious financial conflict of interest or any other conflict of interest. That's the first thing we have to do to even have a chance, I think, of some accountability is we have to remove the conflicts of interest. And right now, I think it's gotten as bad as it can get.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's end back at the beginning again. I remember 2002 like it was yesterday. In fact, I sort of relived 2002 Constantly in parallel to whatever year I'm actually living in. Uh, I remember every bit of it, and I remember what a big deal it was when your essay came out. And I remember being the only one in North America, or maybe the whole world, who noticed that you said in there, Man, we should not attack Iraq. And this is in May of 02. It was not the point of your whole thing because you had, you know, your points were more about the. Uh, lack of intelligence sharing and the the bad job the FBI supervisors in D.C. were doing and all those things. But you said in there, you know what, if you do this, you're gonna make the exact kind of terrorism that we're worried about now so much worse. So how did you know that? Who were you talking to? What were you thinking about that you were so confident to say that then when obviously all the pressure in the world would have been to zip your lip about that?
1: Right. Um, that where I really got more vocal about Iraq was uh, in February of 2003. Just uh, No, two I got it
0: wrong. It wasn't in the May letter in the first place.
1: No, I did do one thing in the May letter, though. In the May letter, I already had this idea. This this notion was in my head that this this global war on terrorism. They, you know, they, they started doing this global war and having, I worked in the so-called war on drugs, uh, you know, I was aware of the war on poverty and I, I had this in my head right away that now going to war um, was not, had nothing to do, I knew this had nothing to do with what I wrote in the whole memo about fixing these problems. So the the notion that we were going to go to war already, and I have to say, to to pat my own back, in the May 2002 memo, I got to where I wrote about, I don't know know what, I use the term global war on terrorists or war on terrorism or something. I put it in quotes. I mean, like, this is funny business, folks. This isn't real. And I put this war on terrorism or whatever. I might have been one of the first people to even, you know, look sideways a little bit on what they, what had gone on. But then as as we went from uh, uh, just a few months, I mean, literally, uh, what, eight months, nine months from that memo, and I'd just been on the cover of Time magazine and had narrowly survived one of the very few whistleblowers who narrowly survived uh, not not being fired uh, or whatever for a lot of reasons. One one reason I survived was I there were four senators who wrote to um, Mueller and Ashcroft that I shouldn't be fired. Our two Minnesota senators, Wellstone and Dayton, and Leahy and Grassley. So I had four senators who immediately went to bat. I mean, it takes a lot to survive and not. Uh, be fired at the very least, fired um, for for being a whistleblower. But I had, and not only that, I was on the cover of Time magazine. And then I see they're starting, they're they're going to go gin up the war on Iraq. And I had an excruciating. I know Ann Wright talks about not being able to sleep at night, but I I went through an excruciating time period. I wrote op-ed first in February, early February. I wrote an op-ed. Uh, really good op-ed, <laughs> and I sent it to Time Magazine. And the people I sent it to were all impressed and said, "Oh yeah, we'll publish this." They went to their bosses, and they came back an hour later saying, "Colleen, uh, we're going to war in Iraq, and there's no way we can publish this. We've been told it's a done deal." So I this this happened in er, you know in in earlier February. Then I wrote this this letter to Mueller. Because Mueller had told me, anytime you see something wrong, you could you could write to me. And I sent it on February 24th, 2003, and he never responded. So we get into March, and at that point, uh, of course, t- the news is saying that we're going to attack anytime. So like March 6th or 7th, I reached out to the New York Times and had that letter. My letter was a front page. It was one of the few, few opposition to Iraq war that appeared in any kind of media, and it was on the front page of the New York Times. But of course, afterwards, I think the people who did that were all in trouble in the New York Times. Uh, And, uh, and and I just tried to think of every, uh, every reason I could think of that this was going to fail. um, And this, but of course, no one listens at that point, everybody had war fever. And it is, it's too late. By the time you're, by the time you're, you really see this, this Happening, it's very difficult to stop because they own the media. And that's where there were a lot of, there were a couple other people, Scott Ritter, and there were only a couple of other people trying their hardest. Even Walter Pincus was buried on his own Washington Post when he published some of this stuff that we know, oh, it's not true. Colin Powell said this, it's not true. Uh, But so you had to read a lot. And I was reading Knight Ritter. Our one paper here was Knight Ritter. So um, there were reasons why I kind of maybe, I'm not that brilliant, but I know a lot of these things that they gin up. You just, you have to approach it for starters and look at the agendas and the bias. So like a Judith Miller or a Michael Gordon, when they're writing something, you can't just read what they write. You have to say, well, who, what did they say before? You know, how many times have they been wrong before? And if they've been wrong a lot, when they write something, then you say, oh, my gosh, this is being leaked by so-and-so, and it's for this agenda. This is what the open source intelligence analysts have to do. They, they can't just read a lot. They have to know the particular biases of what they're reading.
0: Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, I'm completely humiliated that I misremembered that thing from 20 years ago. Cause I was sure about no. that. But I I found no. in the Wayback machine here cuz no one else has it. I'll republish it at scotthorton.org. Um found the Wayback machine the memo here and I did a control F and you're right. It doesn't say rack in there anywhere. I was so sure.
1: But anyway, yeah. I know no, that but, you warned but about but it before the
0: see, before I the war broke those, out for sure.
1: Yeah, just check and see though. I think I put the quotes on, uh, the, the so-called war on terror or whatever, Let's try and, that. you know, people, war on even, nope. even then people were all excited about this. There was nobody that was Nate, you know, poo-pooing it.
0: Well, not well, exactly those words, but I'm sure it's in there somewhere. It looks like it's a few thousand words here. So I'm going to post it at, uh, scotthorton.org slash fair use, and then I'm going to read it. It's been <laughs> too long. I misremembered it. Oh, I hate that. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, Still, because I remember citing you though before the war that like you know the same lady that uh, warned us, um, or could have yeah. you know uh, who warned them about the attack warned us about this attack and that we shouldn't be doing it. So
1: and Scott, after the, the you know people said how stupid everybody. I mean, I even ha- only had like one one guy in the in the. Uh, In the FBI, who said, "How stupid can you be?" The rest of them won't even talk to me. But the guy who was uh, the the agent, the SWAT team leader, who was across the hallway from me, he was nice enough to actually say to me, "How stupid can you be doing this?" You know, this is, and I was completely ostracized after that. I had no—I mean, basically, at that point, I was just lucky to make it to retirement. Um, They told me that if I retired early, then they would. uh, they, the OPR, they started a um, mis, what is it called, misconduct investigation for having talked with the New York Times, not authorized to talk with the New York Times, and so uh, that that was hanging over me. And uh, they said, as long as I retired early and got the heck out of there, um, that would, you know, then it would end. So, and I would keep my pension. But you can't speak out against war during a war fever. That is incredibly, almost impossible. And my husband said, you know, there's that old uh, Camus, there's this old uh, classic thing called The Fall by Camus. And in it, it's about a man who knows a woman is drowning in the Seine, in the river, and he lets her drown. And because he's like, oh, the water will be too cold, and I can't swim well enough. So he lets her drown. And then his whole life afterwards, he's got this uh, problem in his head because he says, you know, if I ever, that was wrong of me. That was so unethical. I should have tried to save that woman. And so, and he becomes a drunk and everything else. And then at the end, he says, if it ever happens again, if I'm ever walking by the river and there's somebody drowning, I will save them. And then the end of this this Kamu uh, book, The Fall, is... But the water is always going to be too cold and I can't swim very well. And that's a really great paradigm for these types of really horrible things where you're you're basically, you know, Julian Assange and, and Daniel Hale, you know, this idea of, of martyring yourself. You know, most people will say you don't have to martyr yourself. You don't have to martyr your family. Uh, in order to tell the truth, but in these horrible situations of groupthink and obedience to authority, Milgram and 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 whatever these terrible groupthink situations, the banality of evil is what it is. Uh, yes, you do. Unfortunately, I I I think that's really the only thing. Is As, Assange, of course, is, has turned out to be a complete martyr uh, on this, and and I you know you can uh, p- hope and pray that something breaks loose on this, but it's. This is the situation we find ourselves in when, when we're in these really shock doctrine, banality of evil type situations. And it's really, there's no good answers, no good answers.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, listen, thank you for spending time talking about this with us today. I really do appreciate your perspective. I know the audience will too.
1: Well, I appreciate your effort so much. And I, um, We all just have to keep muddling through and and try to keep up as much much energy as we can.
0: Yeah. And by the way, you know, I don't know. This has never really come up. And I know you're too smart for this. But for you and or any of your buddies who were in your office or your ex-buddies in your office back then, it really wasn't y'all's fault, right? Like, you really did try. And D.C. just wouldn't let you. So I don't know if you ever beat yourself over the head with that. Like, oh, I should have got on a plane to D.C. and yelled at them or you know, some kind of thing like that. But it doesn't it sounds like you did everything that you could. Right.
1: Well, I wasn't the main player, but the agents, these two agents actually did. They were just so on top of it. You can't fault them at all. Um, in fact, I was the day of 9-11. We were talking about this, you know, when we were walking over to the U.S. attorney's office and and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, this we we knew it from the start that this could have been prevented. And uh, the agent didn't know how badly watered down that warning to the FAA had been. But he, he tried separately. He tried separately to do a local warning. I mean, they did everything. I, I don't think they can really, uh, you know, it's these kinds of situations. You can only do what you can do. Um, in my case, you know, I, I was just the legal counsel. Um, I, I think I tried to, to uh, get the truth out afterwards And getting the truth out afterwards, uh, of course, was partially, partially successful. But even then, it wasn't, you know, it didn't really change anything. Yeah. Well,
0: you never know. Uh, I I think that's probably not true. Um, But, um, well, I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, no, now the FBI and the CIA are great at their stupid jobs or whatever. You know, that's not my point, but. Uh, I know you've done a lot of great writing and taught people a lot of stuff. I've learned a lot from you over the years. So that's a little something.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that, mu- that mutual education um, is a factor. So you just keep up doing what you can and then hoping that other people pick it up, you know, and and, and uh, the younger generation, who knows. But we, we, ha- we have to continue on. Yep.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time, Colleen. Really appreciate it.
1: Okay. Good, good afternoon.
0: The Scott Horton Show, anti Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSRadio.com, AntiWar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.